What's up, my miners of intelligence and consciousness? I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. Today with me, I have Ivan Chachanovsky, who is an expert on Russian and Eurasian studies and a professor of political studies at the University of Ottawa. Ivan, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be on this show. Well, thank you so much for being here. I, I think in in issues as complex as this, um, the best way that I like to start is to ask you a little bit about your background. So, like, if you could tell our listeners where you're from, and I think you know, kind of how you got interested in political science. I think that that'd be a good place for us to start, and then from there we can kind of tackle the the giant elephant elephant in the room. Uh, I am originally from Ukraine, from a western part of Ukraine, which is close to Poland. And gladly there is no war uh, there yet, so this is like a kind of a little bit uh, positive, or relatively positive development, if you can say this, because it's huge uh, kind of negative uh, war taking place. It just has negative consequences for a lot of Ukrainians, but I'm originally from Western Ukraine, and um, I studied in the United States. I got my PhD in the U.S., and um, I uh, afterwards I did research on different topics, and I specialized in uh, politics and conflicts in Ukraine. I wrote my dissertation on this topic and published books and articles in academic journals, and I'm still uh, working now on uh, books about uh, Ukraine, in particular, between on the war between Russia and Ukraine and other conflicts like Maidan massacre in Ukraine, and uh, I uh, held various academic positions at various universities in the U.S. Uh, State University of New York in Potsdam at Harvard University. I was a visiting scholar. I was also a postdoctoral fellow at the Library of Congress at the Kluge Center, um, and uh, I also did my postdoctoral. Uh, position at um, fellowship position, research position at the University of Toronto, and now I am based at the University of Ottawa in Canada. And I began interested in politics when I was a child. I wanted to study politics because this was a very important issue. You have Cold War, and I wanted basically to kind of uh, to, uh, to become a kind of professor of political science or international relations because of the conflict, because of the Cold War. And because of experience of my um, parents and grandparents, they, uh, my, my, my mother, uh, she told me about how she grew up and so on. She never moved from any place on her own, but she lived in five different countries without moving on her own because of politics, because of World War II, because of um, like Nazi occupation of Poland, then it was Poland, then um, it was occupied by Nazi Germany, then uh, she was expelled to the Soviet Union, to Soviet Ukraine, and then you have independent Ukraine. So this is just a different, and there was also Polish government after World War II. So you have different countries, basically, with different languages and so on. And I grew up interested in becoming interested in uh, politics and in conflicts, and uh, that's why I research professionally uh, uh, conflicts in Ukraine and politics in Ukraine. And uh, now this became a very important issue, not only to people who do this, scholars who do this, but also for many people in the world, because this is, I think, number one issue now. It, it definitely is. And and I I just didn't, if you would have asked me before this all went down, I didn't think it was going to happen. You know, we, we, we had the annexation of Crimea. 
Um, and I don't, re- I don't remember the date, but what was it, like 2014, 2015, um, that yes. Russia annexed Crimea. And um, it's not a region of the world that I, I'm super in tune with. I know a lot of, a lot of it's, uh, you know, past history, but not, not so much the modern. Then there was the, uh, Euro, the, man, what was it? Not the, the Euro maiden. Was it the Euro maiden? Uh, yeah, I I remember that that was a protest where they ousted the, the uh, other president. So I, I remember that. Um, and, and I think that, and we'll get to, was that, backed by the U.S. was that caused by the U.S. Uh, down later down the line. But I think a good place to go from here is, you know, how does something like this happen? I mean, in, in your opinion, your expert opinion, how does something like this happen? And, and how much of this is, you know, on the United States, uh, we have a history of a pretty shitty foreign policy. I feel like we've, we've missed the mark a lot. So I, I'm curious to know, you know, how much did we um, play a role in this happening or what were the warning signs that we potentially missed? Um, I, I'm, I'm sure you're going to bring up the Minsk agreement, but I just kind of want um, to get your perspective on that. So this is exactly a question which I'm uh, researching now for a book, which I'm uh, writing or finishing now about the origins of this conflict and, and different aspects of this conflict, uh, conflicts in the UK, which took place, uh, starting with Maidan, Maidan massacre, uh, the annexation of Crimea by Russia, the war in Donbass, the civil war in Donbass, and Russian military interventions in Donbass uh, since 2014, and the current war between Russia and Ukraine, which is culmination of these different conflicts which, which started in 2014 with the Maidan, and in particular with the Maidan uh, massacre. So this is, um, this is a book manuscript which I already received uh, invitation to submit my proposal from the U.S. academic press. So I hope to finish this uh, soon, and I'm going to be presenting this on this very topic at the American Political Science Association annual meeting in uh, uh, Montreal Mont- in Canada, actually, in September. So okay. this is based on my research. And I can say this is like a most important issue, so I do not yet have all the evidence to say, because this is still part of research, and not all the evidence is available, but the conflict again, which is currently uh, going on in Ukraine, between Russia and Ukraine, goes back to the Maidan and to the violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government by the means of the Maidan massacre of the police and uh, Maidan protesters. And this massacre was crucial start of this conflict. It became a t- turning point in Ukrainian politics, but also this uh, massacre led to violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government, which was relatively pro-Russian, in terms of orientation, and this led to response by Russia, which uh, when Russia escalated this conflict and uh, annexed Crimea region in southern Ukraine, which was part of uh, uh, kind of was part of uh, Ukraine, but uh, was uh, populated by ethnic Russians, and afterwards they started also to support separatists, Russian separatists in Donbas, and um, finally it. Uh, uh, drastically escalated this conflict by invading Ukraine in 2022. And in my interviews, media interviews, and in my publications, including in the United States, popular publications, I um, predicted that this could happen, that the war between Russia and Ukraine could happen. There was very strong possibility or real possibility of this war. So I tried to prevent this, basically, just because I researched this. So I saw this basically becoming a very dangerous situation, and it was possible to avoid this war. 
and to prevent it. But uh, unfortunately, this did not happen. And so now, uh, it, I think important to understand how this happened. And that's why I'm uh, researching this issue, in particular, role of different uh, political actors, different countries in this conflict. And I'm looking into the role of the United States as well, and uh, in different contexts, including the war between Russia and Ukraine, but also in um, because this has also became a proxy war between uh, the Western, uh, in, in particular the United States and Russia in UK, but also I'm looking into the Maidan massacre, who was responsible for this, and uh, how this uh, massacre led to the violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government, and what this actually was from a political science perspective, and evidence, was this a revolution, was it a coup, was this um, a regime change led, led by the United States, so based on my current research and current evidence, I can say there are different elements of all this taking place. So there were the elements of far-right-led uh, revolution in uh, Maidan. During Maidan, there are also evidence of oligarchic coup in, uh, during Maidan in 2014, but also there is certain evidence of the United States-led regime change. So it's not yet clear which one was most important, but uh, because a lot of evidence is not yet public, in particular, a lot of documents from the U.S. government, which can shed a role on the U.S. and kind of involvement in this, are still not publicly available. So I, I think this is very important to, to know what actually happened and which, who actually was responsible for these events. But uh, I think there is evidence of the United States involvement in this uh, Maidan-led uh, uh, violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government because the U.S. government supported this publicly, and there are also. Uh, other evidence. Uh, there is no evidence of direct involvement of the U.S. in the Maidan massacre, but uh, there was a testimony uh, or interview by uh, two leaders of far-right political party called Svoboda. And mm -hmm. they uh, gave interview to Ukrainian journalists in, 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 in their book. This Ukrainian journalist uh, said that these two leaders of far-right party, which was originally a neo-Nazi party, they uh, said that uh, they met, along with other Maidan leaders, they met uh, with a uh, representative of the West. And they did not name any country, specific country, but it was very likely the United States, because this representative was speaking on behalf of all Western countries. So this only one country can do this. And, and they basically discussed uh, how U.S., how Western governments can change their policy towards recognition of their existing then government of uh, Viktor Yanukovych, uh, and uh, they uh, basically discussed how many people need to be killed to, for the West to stop recognizing the Yanukovych government. And they, uh, Maidan leaders mentioned like five people killed, 20. They said not enough. Um, Western representative told this was not enough. If uh, there would be 100 people killed then on Maidan, then um, the US and other governments, basically the Western governments would change the recognition of the Yanukovych government and would support Maidan opposition. And this is exactly what happened. Uh, after Maidan massacre on February 20th, uh, there was uh, close to 100 Maidan protesters killed uh, during this um, very violent event. And uh, and immediately on this, after this massacre took place, like within hours, there was a name for this protesters who were killed. They were called Heavenly Hundred. And so this is became a very kind of 
body kind of mention a name of, of protesters have only hundred who were killed, even so they were not exactly one hundred, but very close to one hundred, and many of them or some of them were not even killed during, during the Maidan, but they were included as a part of these victims in order to create like have any hundred. And, uh, and immediately after the Maidan massacre, without any investigation, the U.S. government and other Western governments stopped recognizing uh, Yanukovych government, and they supported opposition. They recognized new government of the Maidan, uh, which was led, led by the Maidan opposition, including far-right parties, including from Svoboda. So this is just uh, one uh, evidence of of the U.S. involvement or Western government involvement in this uh, regime change, and even then President Obama, uh, when he gave interview, after the Maidan took place, he said that U.S. Uh, U.S. administration, his administration, was involved in uh, in arranging and transition of power in Ukraine during the Maidan. So he also said that this uh, there was U.S. involvement, but he did not specify what kind of involvement uh, was. But I think this is very important to say that this was not only a Ukrainian kind of led event, but there was. United States in moment and after the Maidan massacre, after the uh, new government came to power as a result of Maidan massacre, Ukraine became what I call a U.S. client state because U.S. government became very strongly involved in Ukrainian politics and, and policy and key decisions by Ukrainian government, like not to resist Russia, to annex Crimea. Uh, this was done by basically because the U.S. government told U.S. government officials told Ukrainian government officials what to do and what not to do. And in specific, specifically about Minsk agreements, this was U.S. government officials who said to Zelensky not to, and to Poroshenko that these um, agreements should not be implemented. And they basically, Ukrainian government followed this again because Ukraine became very dependent on the United States. And U.S. Uh, government, in particular, then Vice President Biden, who was... Uh, uh, before he was elected president of U.S., he was vice president, vice president of the United States under Obama administration, and he was responsible for relations with Ukraine. And so he was very active in 2014 in the, all these events, and uh, and specifically after a uh, uh, new government was formed, he became involved in, in deciding or supporting who would become prime minister of Ukraine, who should be dismissed, and who would be nominated. So this kind of another illustration that um, U.S., plays very strong uh, influence in the Ukrainian politics after the Maidan. And the same concerns, as the same applies to current uh, war between Russia and Ukraine. Wow. That's, I mean, I, I understood it at a, uh, I, I thought a, a little deeper level than uh, most people, but you went very granular there. And that was a lot of information. And thank you for sharing. But that those are some I mean, I wouldn't call them accusations, right? Like that you have you have the documents that you've read, but that is wild. And and just so the you were just so the folks that um aren't from as familiar, the Maidan massacre is essentially where uh the protesters were were protesting in the Maidan Square, correct? Am I, am I correct yes. with that? And there were snipers that just started shooting people. And I don't think they ever caught any of the snipers, correct? Like that no one was ever found out. They don't know where they came from. And it was super fishy. And you were saying that you'd found a document that said how many people need to die at this protest in order for the West to back us. Just just uh, like really s quick catch up, make sure every, we're, everyone's following along. Is, is that a, a pretty good assumption of, of a very shortened version of what you were saying? 
Yes, there were like interviews by two leaders of Maidan in the Ukrainian book, which is published so in Ukrainian, and I cited this in my studies. In addition to this, I did research about Maidan massacre. Who was responsible? Yeah. Who actually committed this mass murder? And this is, again, published in peer-reviewed journals, in, 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 presented in US conferences, academic conferences, publishing books. So my research is academic one, but I found a lot of evidence, which is, I think, overwhelming without any doubt. I can say that this massacre was conducted uh, in front of uh, thousands of people, like witnesses, in front of uh, hundreds of uh, journalists from different countries, including the United States, like CNN, uh, footage like BBC, all this uh, major, yeah. NBC and CBS, I, I check their footage, I, I check their footage and uh, videos uh, about my, my massacre live film uh, during this massacre. So mm -hmm. this, all this evidence is uh, shows that this massacre was not conducted by government snipers or not by the police, which were tied for the massacre, but still um, there is nobody convicted for this mass, mass murder. But this was conducted by uh, snipers who were located in Maidan control buildings, and specifically they killed and wounded both police and Maidan protesters in order to falsely blame uh, government forces, to falsely kind of uh, blame um, government snipers in order to delegitimize, basically to say that they were responsible, uh, that they, this was massacre on orders from the Yanukovych government, and this led to his overthrow because he was removed by the parliament and he was blamed for the massacre. And the West, basically, including the United States, stopped, stopped to recognize, uh, recognize him as the president of, uh, of uh, Ukraine. And then Biden, uh, in his, uh, think in his memoirs, he uh, says that um, when the massacre happened, uh, just immediately after this, uh, he called Yanukovych and told Yanukovych that he basically needs to leave Ukraine uh, because and he he needs to leave presidency of Ukraine and he have, has to leave Ukraine as well. So this is just kind of without any investigation. This was, again, immediately blame on Yanukovych. Even so, all the evidence, which is uh, not only evidence which is publicly available, which I collected, like hundreds of testimonies, more than five, well, 500 witness testimonies about snipers, videos of snipers, uh, there is also evidence from Maidan massacre trial and investigation, which is publicly available. Mm -hmm. I posted on, on my YouTube page. There are testimonies of absolute majority of Maidan protesters who were wounded during this massacre. And they testified that they were wounded not by the police who are charged with this massacre or any government snipers. They testified that they were wounded and shot from, uh, from locations of, uh, of Maidan controlled buildings in the back and in the side. So this is just... Uh, this is consistent with forensic medical examinations, with testimonies of dozens of prosecution witnesses, with admissions by 14 members of Maidan sniper groups. In public, uh, they publicly admitted. Some of them were Georgian snipers. They said they, they received order from Maidan leadership uh, to massacre both police and protesters in order to educate house and uh, to overthrow Yanukovych government. This was successfully done. And evidence is just overwhelming. I published this evidence, but the issue is that media never reported this. So it's like people who have no idea, they read like New York Times or Washington Post, or they watch like all the television networks in the US, they just have image that this was done by the uh, Yanukovych government, by the police. Even so, there is nobody uh, basically charged with this, um, nobody uh, convicted for this massacre, mm -hmm. and uh, the trial is still ongoing, but uh, all the evidence shows that the, uh, that this massacre was not, was not conducted by government snipers, but was conducted by the opposition snipers, including from far-right um, organizations like Svoboda 
and the allied sector. So, and when I want to be very, very clear with uh, our listeners, you are not pro-Russian at all. You, I've, I've, you've been on record many, many times saying that this is an illegal invasion. It is a violation of international law. But you are just presenting the evidence as as where it points to, right? Like this is just you're, you're stating facts. Like this, this wasn't this. There's a lot of shady shit going on, and you're presenting that. But I mean, just you're you're definitely you're not pro-Russian. You are you are, but you're also you know a historian in a certain context. And and it's my understanding, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the democracy Ukraine has never really actually had a democracy. It has generally been more more along the lines of what what's set up in in in, in, in Russian in, in Russia, correct? It's uh oh man, I can't think of it. It's not a junta. That's uh, in South America. It's uh it's not coming to me. But um, it, Russia is not. Or Ukraine is generally that the governmental structures of Ukraine. Like how does it? John, go ahead. Do you mean oblast? Uh, yeah, no oblast. Yeah, 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 I think so. Is that generally is that the is that the type of government it was before they they overthrew the 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 character in twenty fourteen? So I studied this issue as well uh, about the issue if you get this democracy or not, and I can say again based on my research, uh, not kind of again this is not any politics. Uh, kind of I have nothing to do with Russia, mm-hmm. and uh, I often I supported a democracy since uh, I was uh, a student. In yep. UK, and, uh, so I actually went to the first demonstration, pro-democracy anti-Soviet demonstration in, in uh, 1988, uh, when there was still Soviet Union, and, and there were just a few dozen people on this demonstration, which was in Kiev, downtown Kiev. So I was the kind of one, the one who uh, actually attended the basically the first public legal demonstration against the Soviet Union, and I have not, nothing to do with Russia. I always supported. Uh, Kind of Western style, Western style democracy in Ukraine, but unfortunately, according to my research, Ukraine is not a democracy; it's largely undemocratic. So, in in, in terms of form of the government, Ukraine is actually very uh, very closely to to Russia. It's mostly undemocratic uh, government, and uh, and Zelensky is not a democrat, as uh, as he uh, kind of shown by the Western media. He's actually. Um, basically, now close all the opposition parties. Basically, he banned all the opposition parties. He uh, just allowed one television channel, which kind of, which uh, all the television channels, basically news channels, and you can just show one content, which is pro-Zelensky content. So they have just one uh, program, like uh, only one news program, all the same news program, all, all television channels. So this is just one kind of television show. So you can imagine if this would be like Fox News would be would be translated on CNN and, and, and MSNBC and would be supporting basically Donald Trump or like CNN would join would be content would be supported would be shown by all other television stations uh, when Biden was president. So there would be no opposition at all. Just uh, everything would be pro government. And this is what happened now. So Zelensky basically and here even um, kind of. Uh, kind of uh, accused all his opposition, uh, kind of uh, leaders of opposition, basically being uh, Russian agents and uh, committing state treason and uh, charged them with state treason. So, so basically, that's why there is no real opposition now in Ukraine. And, and I think this makes you can very similar now to Russia. And, and Zelensky wants to be a new kind of Putin. This is, I think, uh, his uh, goal and and uh, continue to his public image. And all this, his public relations uh, campaign, which uh, very successful because he is uh, kind of by uh, 
his professional occupation, he's a very good actor. He kind of was in a kind of industry, or entertainment industry, but yep. he's um, kind of not a very uh, kind of democratic politician to say this much. You're blowing my mind. I, I, uh, I didn't know what we were going to get into. And there's so many things I'm learning right now. Uh, I had no idea that he, I, I didn't know he had grabbed so much power during this event. And he's completely backed by the West right now. And yeah. he's almost being used as a pawn in this giant, you know, in, in G in this, in the geopolitical sense, like he think he, I mean, for the, the, the image, the images that we are getting um, back in the States is that like, this is like the, the, like the the great man theory of history like this is a man that like somehow over all the odds got elected he was an actor on a famous like com- a comedian he's a comedian uh, a comedian yeah. that became president and then all the, the the world turned against him and his country and he's rallied the troops and he's holding off this eastern advance from the red army you know so to speak right that's how i would sell this and it's interesting to hear a different, a different, maybe a, a, an unbiased perspective of actually what's going on. Cause none of us are there. I'm I don't, I, I, during the initial push of the Russian forces, uh, I'm a military history nut. So I was freaking out and watching all, all way too much battle footage and just like getting way too engrossed in this. And, but the one thing that I didn't do is I went, I started researching it and, and I realized how incredibly nuanced this was and that, there is a different perspective. There is the Russian perspective. And, you know, I don't know if we're, we are even talking to them, which I think is, uh, hopefully we are, we're still able to communicate and you can answer that a little, little in a second. But I, what I, what I started to realize is that from their perspective, we have, we, you know, the United States has, from their perspective, they've had a, an open hand toward us for years, and we've kind of slapped it away. And granted, they've done terrible things, and as of we, but they they wanted to join NATO at one point. We said no. Um, when during the reunification of Germany deal, part of the deal was that NATO wouldn't expand eastward. We said yes, and then we lied, and we 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 added a few countries into the into the NATO bloc, which they feel like is threatening their borders. Um, the line that they drew essentially was Ukraine, and there's a lot of countries that I'm leaving out just because I have a terrible memory today. But but from their perspective, like they're they've always been like we want to be your friends, or we feel like we want to be your friends, but you guys always have us as an enemy and Ukraine as they started to draw closer to the West to me the way I looked at it would at it is if China wanted to build a base in Mexico we wouldn't let it happen and that's I I feel like that's my perspective of it that's my understanding of it and and I'm curious to get your thoughts as to if I'm way off base or if I'm if I'm uh, if I'm getting close to, to hitting a home run here yeah, I think this is very close to Homeland, but I can say this is more precisely it would be a similar situation when to Canada and the US. Yeah. Because of close historical ties, not only just geographic location, but very close historical and uh, ties. So they used to be one country, and uh, like Canada and the United States, basically before independence, US independence. But, yep. uh, kind of, uh, but uh, in terms of history, before they became independent, but um, kind of. Uh, like uh, and Canada, 
would be a kind of very similar kind of relationship as you can to Russia. Okay. Uh, so as uh, again, as Canada is in the United States, and I mentioned this also in, uh, in my interviews, and this is also important because I research another area of my research is United States and Canada comparing U.S. and Canada. So this is kind of also related, and and I can say this is an important issue about actually Russian invasion because obviously this is illegal invasion. It's not justified by mm -hmm. any kind of um. The text which was given by Putin in invading Ukraine, it was illegal under international law, and claims uh, by Putin that um, Ukraine is uh, kind of is basically is uh, going to become member of NATO in the uh, near future would become a base for military uh, missiles or weapons from the West. Uh, we are not supported by any evidence. I, I do not think that there was likely that you can had any chances of becoming NATO member in the foreseeable future, in part, in part because NATO did not want to have any uh, conflict with Russia or war mm -hmm. with Russia. And that's why they oppose even now membership of Ukraine, because this would mean war with nuclear Russia. And also there was um, no, there were no Nazis in the Ukrainian government, so claimed by Putin that this is denazification is also kind of based on misrepresentation and his claim that there is a genocide of Russians in or ethnic Russian speakers or ethnic uh, ethnic Russians or Russian speakers in Ukraine in Donbass also is not supported by evidence and this is I wrote about this in my studies and and it uh, talked about this publicly so there was no such such justification for Russian invasion but this does not mean that Russia did not regard Ukraine as a kind of as possibly a military threat and political said to Russia, as similarly what happened uh, kind of with Caribbean uh, new missile crisis when um, kind of uh, when the Soviet Union uh, used Cuba to deploy nuclear weapons, so they yeah. believe there was such possibility, so they claim this as also justification for this invasion because this can happen in the future, so they believe this uh, this might happen, and also they kind of uh, say that this is Ukraine basically was used used as a tool against Russia, and, and now when the United States basically uses Ukraine and other Western countries use Ukraine as a, to wage a proxy war with Russia, so this is actually uh, Russian government says basically this is what uh, they wanted they they were concerned about because this uh, this is like testimony that uh, they are claims that the West is only interested in using Ukraine as a tool against Russia is now kind of backed by a policy of the U.S. by giving weapons, basically by using Ukraine uh, to fight Russia without actually deploying uh, um, U.S. military or NATO military forces in in, uh, in Ukraine, but uh, giving weapons and giving like intelligence and other support money basically for the government and, and so on. So that's why I think a kind of uh, pretext for invasion was illegal and invasion was illegal, but uh, this does not mean that um, there was no way to avoid this. It was possible to avoid this war between Russia and Ukraine, and I mentioned specifically in my interviews and in my publications before this war was launched by Russia, I said that there was such possibility, for instance, by uh, Ukraine becoming a neutral country. So there was no possibility of mem NATO membership of Ukraine, for, for, uh, for even so such um, such membership was mentioned as a possibility by NATO, by NATO in uh, 2008. Um, but uh, this was this means it was very easy for you can to abandon this uh, goal of NATO membership and become a neutral country and accept uh, a kind of a, a Minsk agreement to accept basically autonomy of Donbass and uh, this would mean that uh, 
this would basically mean that Russia would, would no longer have any pretext for invasion of Ukraine and would accept this uh, in order to prevent such okay, war between Russia and Ukraine from a Russian invasion of Ukraine. And also, I said that in exchange for this, Ukraine could be offered a prospect of becoming a member of the European Union in the future if it would fulfill all the criteria like democracy and human rights and so on. But unfortunately, this did not happen. and. Now I think it would be very difficult to have a peaceful resolution to this conflict because now this war uh, is going for a long time and there are a lot of casualties in Ukraine, devastation to Ukraine and if the war would continue it would have even much more negative impact on Ukraine and I don't think that uh, a peaceful resolution is now very likely unless there would be any change, significant change in the military outcome of this war. We're getting to a point where too much blood is being shed, but I do want to push back on something. You you did mention that there was no evidence for um, like a, a genocide towards Russian speakers um, in, I believe, the Donbass region, correct? Yes. But I do, I, I, I am curious because I, I, it's my understanding that there were laws passed to kind of get rid of the Russian language, right, which could be a bit of an aggressor. Um, you know, language is very, very important. Your, your home country of Canada, they have laws in Quebec that it, it's illegal, I believe, to like um, not teach French. So that's a very, very important language is very, very important. The second thing I want to know is, is, is there any credence to the Russian claims that Ukraine was shelling Donbass? Uh, because there was, I believe, a separatist movement. And then also it's, it's, a, it's like a three part question. How deep is this separatist movement in those regions, Donbask and Luhansk? Is it is it is it as widespread as the Russian propaganda machine wants to make it, or is it as faint as the West? It's probably somewhere in the middle, but I'm I'm kind of curious. So so uh, just kind of to reiterate it, was Donbas shelled by the Ukrainian government? Were there laws passed? against Russian language speakers, and how deep is this so-called separatist movement, or is there one? Uh, yes, I, I researched all these issues, and I can say that uh, there was a shelling of Donbass by the Ukrainian forces since 2014, when the civil war started. And this okay. war was started not accidentally, it started in Donbass, because I published my book about regional conflicts and divisions in Ukraine, in 2006, before this conflict started, in which I said that there was a real possibility that Ukraine could face a breakup of a country, basically sep separatist division in Ukraine, in particular by looking to separatist um, two regions in Ukraine, which I identified were Crimea and Donbass. Based on my research, based on public opinion surveys, mm -hmm. which show that there was absolute majority support for, for joining Russia in Crimea in the 1990s, it became smaller, when Yanukovych was elected, but still very significant, and majority supported uh, joining Russia when after the Maidan, when there were laws adopted against Russian language and, and a new government came to power, which was anti-Russian. So uh, the similar situation happened in Donbass. So in Donbass, I um, conducted, I uh, mentioned this um, separatist, um, uh, that this was separatist region, significant support for separatism even before. Uh, Maidan, after the solution, dissolution of the Soviet Union, there was a significant support for separatism in Donbass in addition to Crimea. And uh, the same happened after the first Maidan in 2004, when also uh, Russian government was basically um, replaced after they attempted 
to falsify um, election results, and they were based in this region. And uh, Yanukovych, in particular, they was not elected president, and he was actually and other politicians that supported separatism or autonomy for this region. And after the Maidan happened, I conducted actually a survey. I commissioned a survey in Ukraine from a company which is most respectable, reputable company, sociological company in Ukraine, um, Kiev Institute of International Sociology, um, International Sociology Institute, and they conducted this survey for my research project, which I published in Washington Post and uh, presented in um, um, American Political Science Association conference and published them in a book and, mm -hmm. and in uh, as article in peer review journal, which actually was the most cited article on the civil war in Donbass in Google Scholar. So this is uh, just uh, based on this survey, I can say that there was a significant support, a majority support for separatism in Donbass. So, but different forms of separatists. Not, uh, not all of them supported joining Russia. Some supported independence of Donbas, and uh, many Ukrainians supported in Donbas supported autonomy of this region within mm. Ukraine. So yep. this this means there was uh, public support for separatists in Donbas, even so this was denied by media by politicians. There was clear evidence that Donbas there was the only region. Uh, in the Ukraine, with the exception of uh, Crimea, uh, that had the majority support for separatists uh, in uh, different forms of separatists in this region. Uh, all other regions of Ukraine had minority support of separatists. So that's why Donbass, it was not accidental that the um, war took place. And the shelling of, um, of Donbass happened, and the most active uh, fighting in Donbass happened in 2014 and 2015 uh, between separatists, and most of them were local citizens. I also collected all the data, but there were also Russian volunteers. And but in addition to this, they also obviously could not match uh, Ukrainian military forces. Uh, but and uh, Ukrainian military came very close to capturing, basically defeating all the separatist forces in summer of 2014. But then Russia deployed covertly their military to Donbas to support separatists. They did not recognize this publicly, but all the evidence suggests that there were Russian military forces. Just few, uh, like several battalions, maybe several, a few thousand Russian military forces, they were able to, again, push back Ukrainian forces and uh, kill many Ukrainian uh, soldiers and uh, members of paramilitary battalions and far-right-led battalions, and they were able basically to kind of... Uh, uh, to establish de facto independence of, of Donbass uh, separatist regions. But they were not recognized by Russia because Russia still publicly recognized uh, them as a Ukrainian uh, part of Ukraine, but it supported separatists. And, um, and after a second attempt by the Ukrainian forces to capture Donbass in 2015, Russia again deployed military forces. Uh, correctly, uh, and uh, was able to encircle Ukrainian forces. And after this, Ukraine, Ukrainian government had to sign uh, Minsk agreements in which they basically agree uh, under pressure from Russia, military pressure from Russia, after result of basically defeat from Russia, military defeat, they uh, sign uh, agreement to basically give autonomy to Donbass and de facto independence of Donbass within Ukraine. So basically, Donbass would become a, a region with their own government, with their own militia, basically um, uh, kind of uh, their own prosecutor, uh, justice system, and so on, but still nominally within Ukraine. So this was a possible way to resolve this conflict. But And Zelensky, when he came to power, he was elected. 
uh, basically on peace, uh, promise of peaceful resolution of this conflict. So he said that he would uh, go to Russia to meet with anybody just to make a peace in Ukraine, and he was elected by mostly by people who were from Eastern Ukraine and for Southern Ukraine, um, many of whom were pro-Russian, not actually supporting joining Russia, but they wanted to have better relations with Russia, and mm -hmm. they voted to him, and he got elected against the former president, Poroshenko, who was very kind of hardline nationalistic, very kind of belligerent, supporting war with Russia and so on, kind of uh, using all this language. Ukraine, Zelensky was uh, actually opposite. He basically said that it's necessary to respect all languages, Russian language, it's necessary to have peace with Russia. With Russia. So this actually election was uh, given hope that uh, the Ukraine would, might have, again, possible the resolution of this conflict. And uh, afterwards, there was a meeting between um, uh, Zelensky and Putin uh, with uh, leaders of France and Germany in, uh, I think in Paris, in which there was agreement basically to try to defuse this conflict and implement the Minsk agreement, which was, there was a dispute between how to implement this, and uh, basically Zelensky and Putin agreed that there would be a withdrawal of, of, of military from, from uh, front line in order to defuse, to avoid shelling of these forces. It was, agree it was agreed that Ukrainian forces would be, and, and separatist forces would be withdrawn from, from their line of, uh, of basically, of combat, and this led to reduction of shelling for, for one year or maybe two years. But then Zelensky uh, changed his position. He became again very radical. He started to advocate for military, take over on Donbass. Uh, and uh, this happened after he visited Donbass and, and uh, far right on the Nazi organization led, linked to Azov. Uh, told him basically that uh, they would not leave this region, they, they threatened him that he would be dismissed from uh, president or he, even he would be killed if there would be peace with Russia. So he had to change his policy. He became uh, this uh, kind of new Poroshenko, very kind of anti-Russian and uh, starting to support not only kind of uh, military takeover of, of Donbass by, by force, but also military takeover of, again, uh, in, kind of, of Crimea, which was annexed by Russia. So this led to intensification of conflict between Russia and Ukraine and Russia supported separatists, even so there were no separatist military forces in Donbass until 2022, and with exception of these two short uh, Russian military interventions in 2014 and 2015. And there was increased shelling shortly be before the, the war started, but uh, the shelling of uh, Donbass was not comparable in any form or in scope to what happened in 2014 and 2015. So there was increase in shelling, but it, there was no uh, evidence that the Ukrainian forces wanted to again uh, capture Donbass or take it back from from uh, from uh, separatists or, or from supported by Russia. Uh, even so, the Russian government claims that there was such evidence. There is no such evidence uh, which I examined or reliable evidence. And, and shelling was significant, but it was not comparable to what uh, was before, and it no way comparable to what happened after uh, the Russian invasion of Donbass, because now Donbass is the main area of battle between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, that's. But I mean, just the the, you know, him going down there. Meeting with those people and then you know trying to to get it back and then shelling—that's not the best political move, right? If you're trying to make peace, um, but it's—I—I I, I just I'm confused by that, right? Like why 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 start doing that? You know, like d d does that make sense to you? 
Yes, because he basically Zelensky, he's um, I think uh, what I call him is a weak president. He's not. He's just a place very strong president because he was elected after uh, he became very popular on Ukrainian television after the television show in which he played a very kind of strong uh, president, mm -hmm. kind of which he now became basically after uh, kind of tries to present himself after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, basically supporting ordinary people, becoming very tough. Again uh, and so on. So he now this basically the same uh, Zelensky who played such president in in this fictional movie, which mm -hmm. got him elected as, as president of Ukraine. But in fact he was very weak and uh, even even kind of as a leader because he was uh, elected not only by his own kind of based on his own popularity. He was promoted by oligarch uh, who was a very powerful oligarch who owned television channel. Mm -hmm. in which um, this television show was shown and Zelensky was basically backed by oligarch to presidency of Ukraine. So he was already, already a kind of client of this oligarch. So he was elected to basically not only again, become president, but also to support uh, economic interests of this oligarch who had the problems. And he actually recently even investigated in the United States for corruption. By uh, he, he bought a lot of property uh, from uh, from money from his bank, which he uh, laundered from Ukraine in Cleveland and in te Texas, he bought a lot of like factories, buildings, and steel mills and so on in uh, in Texas and in Cleveland in Ohio, and now FBI investigated him, so he was in very hot water. But uh, basically, he uh, kind of uh, he supported uh, Zelensky, and Zelensky became his president. But after election, um, Zelensky became uh, actually more influenced by uh, the United States and also by far right, so uh, who threatened him publicly uh, if he would make a deal with Russia. So he, again, uh, he basically caved to such pressure. Oh, and shit. that's why right, uh, kind of he's, uh, he's not a very strong, because if he were actually was a leader of Ukraine, he would uh, just uh, do this, even because he had popular man mandate. He had 73% support of Ukrainians. But he basically was threatened, and he felt that it's more dangerous to oppose far right who could have uh, shot him or, or just uh, tried to overthrow him. And there was a real possibility of this because they attacked his office. They put a swastika on his office just one year ago. And this was, again, kind of, they threatened him publicly to hang him in Kiev if he would make a deal with Russia. So this is done openly without any consequences. And basically, police stood by. The police uh, stood by. And so this means few thousand people who have no power, like they are not elected, but they have power basically to overthrow Ukrainian president. And this is why this was very dangerous. And the U.S. government also um, did not, uh, because U.S. government had very strong influence on Zelensky, and uh, they could uh, tell him basically to try to make a peace deal, but uh, they told him opposite. And uh, the, when this um, uh, impeachment happened in the United States, there was a, a very famous case of a phone call between uh, Donald Trump and Zelensky. Mm -hmm. And what surprised a lot of people actually when this, in UK, when this uh, this uh, phone call uh, transcript was released, this that uh, Zelensky became uh, in his phone call, he was uh, again very uh, kind of deferent to Trump. So he will like say all this kind of trying to please Trump. So he, this was not like uh, talk between two leaders of countries, but Zelensky was basically trying to to do this all all this kind of to please the Trump by giving him all everything like and saying all that he regarded Trump as greatest politician and so on. This is like all this talk basically kind of trying to to, to be liked by Trump and not to be a kind of a leader and kind of preserve this 
kind of independence and that's why kind of this was uh, shocked to many people that Zelensky basically was trying basically to, to kind of uh, to not, not be a kind of real leader of Ukraine but was uh, trying to be liked by Trump and basically trying to please him on, in a, any way and form and this is happened the same with Biden when Biden was elected so Zelensky tried to please him and he uh, one way to do this he uh, also uh, closed opposition television channels because this, they were supported by relative Russian party and so and he and Zelensky decided to please uh, Biden by giving him present by closing opposition channels which were linked to the Russian political party which was relatively Russian they not supported Russian invasion but they advocated closer relations with Russia mm -hmm. and peace with Russia which was considered then again kind of basically a, a treason and now this leader of this party is arrested by Zelensky and put in, in prison so that's why kind of so <laughs> any <laughs> this is why I'm saying uh, I was telling my students even before this war started I was saying my students that Ukrainian politics is more interesting than Hollywood movies yeah imagine this. this is like you watch this and this is like the reality of this television yeah, show it's, it's like yeah it's like the reality so anytime someone has a little bit of common sense there's like all right we can there's a way we can cut a deal to get us out of here and be free someone comes in and kind of fucks it up some uh, some there's like 17 different you've got the far right you got oligarchs you've got people that are like well, we kind of like russia let's keep them uh, you know let's let's kind of let's get closer to them and then also appease the west you have so, you know you have a president that's weak that's trying to please everybody but he you know he's he's kind of corrupted as well so you just th th this is a it's almost like the perfect storm of um a foobar, right? It's just, it's, it's not good. Uh, how, how do we get out of here? How do we cut a deal? You have the, the, the fighting's intensifying and, and uh, to be fair and to be honest with you, I was obsessed with this in the beginning and it started to consume me and started to really pay, I feel a little bit too much attention to this. And I, that wasn't, it's not good for my mental health, right? Like I, it just, so I kind of have, have been, been dropping by, but it, but is my understanding that the, the fighting is intensified. It's getting more bloody. I, I think the Russian advance has stalled um, to a certain degree. Is, am I correct in that assumption? Uh, no, I think this is like Russia originally, um, I think, okay, I think to, to do this very fast. So they wanted uh, to, they uh, invited Ukraine from different directions. Mm -hmm. And from the north, uh, in Kyiv area, also from the south and from uh, Donbass and uh, Kharkiv area, from the east. And uh, they specifically, I think their goal was not to capture Ukraine, not to occupy entire Ukraine, but uh, to uh, force a regime change from a mm -hmm. Western government to a Russian government. And they yep. wanted either to change the government, basically if the Ukrainian government, they expected maybe Zelensky not, would not fight because Russia has military advantage, so they maybe believe that uh, he, or his military would, would not fight and they basically would be able to easily replace the uh, government in Ukraine, in Kyiv, with um, a set of Russian military forces nearby. Or they expected also that another alternative was that Zelensky would himself agree mm -hmm. to uh, demands by Russia to have neutral status for Ukraine, to basically give a Russian language official status and to ban basically or kind of denazify um, like uh, Ukrainian uh, politics, which again, uh, Russia uses this body, but uh, Basically, this could have been done by limited far-right organizations and policies. So, and basically, Russia also demanded demilitarization of Ukraine and mm -hmm. recognition of um, independence of uh, Donbass within borders of Donbass, 
So this was an issue which was not accepted by Ukraine, but uh, Zelensky uh, initially kind of agreed to discuss these demands and there was a real possibility of peace deal between Russia and Ukraine on uh, not on all of these points, but um, uh, Zelensky basically agreed to, for Ukraine to become a neutral country, uh, non-NATO membership um, in exchange for uh, a guarantee from the Western countries and Russia that uh, they would accept neutral status of Ukraine, there would be no invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so there was such possibility uh, to do this and discuss the status of Donbass separately. Uh, but this agreement was broken after a visit by a British Prime Minister who told Zelensky not to, to sign any peace deal with Russia. And uh, Zelensky then changed this completely. And again, his policy became totally uh, opposed to any peace deal. Uh, he believed that he would uh, could defeat Russia. And after this, uh, and this happened, Russia withdrew their forces from the Kyiv area. And this kind of and uh, northern part of Ukraine, and this was presented in the West as basically defeat of Russia, that uh, Russia forces was defeated by Ukrainian forces. And I watched this, uh, again, I watched all the videos, I watched all the evidence, different sources, like hundreds of videos and, and um, reports from different sources. And this actually was not a military defeat of Russia. Russia obviously had opposition. Uh, there was significant fighting in Kyiv area, but uh, Russia withdrew their forces not because of, uh, again, Ukrainian, um, counter-offensive in this region, but because they, uh, they, uh, I, don't, I don't believe that they wanted to occupy this region because this was not very pro-Russian region, it was anti-Russian region. So they, um, in contrast to other regions of Ukraine, they, they just want to put a pressure on, um, on Zelensky and his government basically by uh, not uh, taking military, uh, by military force Kyiv, but basically trying to encircle or just pressure Zelensky. And when they failed to do this, they moved their forces from Crimea and from other regions of Ukraine to Donbass. So Donbass became now main area of battlefield, or main battlefield between Russia and Ukraine. And mm -hmm. now uh, Russia, Russian goal was to encircle Ukrainian forces in Donbass, and they started to do this, uh, and they are doing this slowly. So this kind of not stalemate, but stalemate, uh, still made, but actually a slow advance by Russia, okay. which, which is very gradual. But they managed to take already a large part of uh, of uh, Donbass, and uh, they do this uh, again. Still have uh, have advanced in uh, still they still have advanced, but slow, very slow advance. But now they rely not on on their tactic, which was used at the first days so during the war when they just launched uh, their forces in Ukraine. Uh, they Kind of and occupied a large part of Ukraine without much fighting before the fighting started near Kyiv and other regions. So they initially were able to, to, to take control of a large part of southern Ukraine in Kherson region and so on. But in Donbass, in Donbass, there were much, much more kind of significant Ukrainian military presence forces because of the war between uh, separatists and, and Ukrainian government for eight years. So there was a very significant military presence of Ukraine and, and forces there were most professional and most committed to fight with mm -hmm. Russia. And they were all already built defensive positions. So now Russia uh, relies not on, on, on their kind of, uh, all this kind of tactics, which they tried to use in the first days of war. They now use artillery, artillery and heavy, heavy bombardment of these areas. So now there are very significant losses from uh, Ukrainian forces there from artillery and bombardment by Russian forces each day. And Zelensky recently stated that there were each day in Donbass about 100 
uh, Ukrainian soldiers killed and 500 wounded each day just in Donbass. And uh, there are also significant uh, Russian media casualties, but I don't think that they are similar to what uh, all this media says or all the government forces say, but there are significant casualties. And now Russia tries to minimize the casualties by using their military so they, and bombardment, so they, they would just try to flatten all these uh, areas in which they advance and do this very slowly, but they are advancing in this, uh, in this area and they are able to capture some towns in Donbass in particular, they were able to capture Mariupol, which was the largest city and port city in the southern Ukraine, in, which was located in Donbass. So there is a gradual still progress by Russia, and I think this means that Russia is still very likely to uh, kind of uh, to, uh, to have advance. They want to basically take control over all Donbass, not just uh, regions which were uh, controlled by separatists before this war, but uh, entire territory of Donbass, and this is now their main goal. But uh, if uh, there would be no peace agreement, the Russian forces might, uh, after the Donbass, after they would be able to defeat or kind of or take control over Donbass, occupy entire Donbass, they might go to other regions of Ukraine in the south, maybe Odessa, maybe Zaporizhia, if uh, there would be no peace agreement. So, uh, but this would be very uh, difficult to do, but um, that's why I'm not sure. I think that Russians also might have preferred to have peace agreement, but uh, now they, I think, I think they plan to annex Donbass and other regions of Ukraine, which are occupied by Russia or which would be still occupied by Russia in the future if the war would continue. Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm, I was wondering because if we're, if we're, if peace, what's going on here is we got to make peace profitable. War is stupid. It's terrible. We have to figure out a way for to make this profitable, right? Like I, I think if if we could get if Russia could get Ukraine not to join NATO and to be a neutral country, potentially, I mean, now they'd be like, you're going to, you have to demilitarize because like you we're at war and I don't like this. We could technically want to win. Then I think we could stop the bloodshed. Um, but if not, and I'm Putin, I mean, you know, and also I'm a huge conquest person just because of the history. So did you take this with a, I would be, I'm taking the whole thing, which would be incredibly expensive. And I don't know if Russia could, you know, potentially pull that off or hold it. And you'd lose all, I mean, they've lost quite a bit of prestige in the international community because of this, but you know, let's not forget that the United States is just as guilty. Like we definitely, the whole Iraq thing, that was definitely uh, an invasion of a sovereign nation. It was, we broke international law and we did the same exact thing. There's, we've done that hundreds of times. Not maybe not hundreds of times, but we've done that quite a bit. So, um, it's it's a it's a very complex issue. I I really hope that the light bulbs will turn on in our leaders' heads and we'll realize that we got to make peace profitable. It's it's been a long time since we've had. Uh, two powers going at each other. And I mean, Russia is definitely a world power with a, a nuclear power. And I think that, and then the institutional memory of the world war two veterans is leaving us and people don't spend a lot of time buried in, in textbooks about war. And I feel like we've forgotten that. And that is what scares me. We've also forgotten the horrors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and how that devastated Japan and the, just the sheer heartbreak. You can, you can read all about it. You can look at pictures. You can look at the, the Pacific campaigns of, 
when we were island hobby, you look at the atrocities in the Vietnam War that were were perpetrated by you know our soldiers. We can look at like we could just you could you go down and war is terrible. It puts people in a terrible place and it scars them for life. And until we can figure out you know how to talk to each other and how to like honor what we mean, what we say, say what we mean, and honor the agreements that we put in place, I don't know if we're you know, if we'll ever see an end to it, but I, I really, I appreciate the work that you've done in this covering this history and the the politics behind it to, to shed some light as to which way, you know, which way people should have gone, which people, which in in the way things are going and you, you know, being able to foresee uh, the, the, the beginnings of a war, right? Just in in the language and in the the papers and in 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 what's going on. Like that is a very important gift that you're bringing to the public. And I really want to thank you. You know, people like you are incredibly important. And the knowledge that you're you know sharing with me. And you know, I don't I'm not I don't can't say that I'm any I'm hopeful now. <laughs> like I don't know if I'm more hopeful than I was before, but it's an important message. And um, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, please tell people uh, where they can buy your work. Where do you do you have a, I think you got a Twitter, share all of your social medias out. Um, and then also when can we expect uh, the new book? Uh, thank you. So this was a very go- good conversation, and you know a lot of you can about the world between Russia and UK. So you have a lot of interest in this uh, topic. So this is, um, questions were very good, and uh, people who are interested in my uh, books uh, can find them on Amazon or any other online. Uh, uh, I, I published another book about history of UK by US um, academic press and about Canada and the United States as well. They are available on Amazon and different other places online. And my new book, uh, actually, uh, I have one book which will be published by the U.S. Uh, academic press, but it would take a few years to publish this because it's a general book about Ukraine. And another book, which is uh, I mentioned uh, about different conflicts in Ukraine, including Russia-Ukraine war, would be, again, uh, would be available, uh, again, uh, as, as soon as, uh, again, I would uh, have my research about war in you can uh, be sure Russian, you can complete it, and then it will take some time to publish and so on. And finally, I also pa- plan to publish a book about Maidan Massacre because I have already completed more, all my research and it's available also on my academic websites, which you can share about. Uh, my papers are available for free for download in my academic websites. And um, uh, I have also YouTube website, which contains a lot of evidence, like testimonies and videos from the Maidan Massacre and my interviews, television interviews and other interviews. So if people are interested, they can find this information on my Twitter and Facebook accounts are also publicly available for anybody who would be interested. We'll we'll post all the links in the show notes. Um, Yvonne, thank you so much. Uh, As soon as the other book comes out, let us know. We'll get you on here again. And uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll talk talk to you later, my man. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you.